You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt, part of Kindling Kids Radio. What exactly is a night terror? Previously on Kindling Conversation, we've spoken about nightmares, and they are very different to night terrors. But how? It's important to know this because, as we'll see, something very different is happening. If you have a child who's having nightmares, you might want to go back and revisit that story. If you're concerned that your child might be having a night terror, stay with us. Dr. Chris Seaton is a paediatric and adolescent sleep physician at the Wilcock Institute. Hi, Chris. Hi, Siobhan. So what is a night terror and how is it different to a nightmare? A night terror is what we call a partial arousal or a partial disturbance of sleep. And it's really interesting because when a child has a night terror, they are actually asleep. Best way to think of a night terror is it's uh, the equivalent of sleepwalking or sleep talking. So it's an awake behavior in a sleeping brain. And very, very different in many ways from nightmares. Um, Kids with nightmares have vivid recall or recollection of their nightmare. And in contrast, kids with night terrors cannot remember anything at all about the content because night terrors occur in non-dream sleep or non-rapid eye movement sleep. But to parents, uh, night terrors are often interpreted as nightmares because their child is very distressed, screaming, crying, not very responsive to their parents, which confuses things and makes it difficult for parents. I think once parents understand that a night terror occurs in a sleeping child, they're on the path to, uh, to discovery and understanding. When you have a night terror or what we call a partial arousal, you do an automatic behaviour. So your brain is triggered to do something that you don't actually control. So if you sleep talk, you talk, but you're not controlling it because your brain's asleep. Same with sleepwalking. You're not really uh, in control of walking because you're not awake. And night terrors, the crying and distress in a night terror is not a reflection of true distress or pain. And that's really important because a lot of the little kids we see with night terrors Their parents think they are in pain. Uh, But interestingly, the next morning, the kids have no recall of any of this at all. Although they're expressing crying or pain symptoms, they are not in pain. Because it it can be very distressing when your child is screaming and crying and you just can't calm them. So that's actually really interesting to know that it's not a reflection of how they're feeling. Yes, it's really important to understand that because the next step in the process of talking to parents is to explain that paradoxically trying to touch and calm a child having a night terror can often blow up in your face. It actually, particularly touching, makes the night terror worse. So it's instinctive for mums or dads, of course, to touch, hug, hold their distressed child. And that's true in all circumstances of distress except night terrors where it's the reverse. So we spend a lot of time convincing parents of the benefits of not touching their child, of standing back and watching. And in fact, that approach will typically make the night terror shorter and in the longer term will cause a child to have less night terrors. In contrast, too much touching 
often what parents report when they pick up their child with a night terror, the child arches their back, pushes away, scratches, sometimes even spits. And this is very distressing to parents if they don't know what it is because they see their child in distress and they don't know why. Once you explain what a night terror is and what to do and what not to do, um, parents are then sort of on the pathway to to helping their child and also helping themselves. Night terrors wake the whole family. So it, it is an issue that, um, interestingly and paradoxically, the only person with good sleep during a night terror is the child having the night terror because everyone is woken up by the by the noise. And these are really common there. If we show a video recording of a night terror to a, a group of parents of young kids and say, how many of you parents have seen your child do this? Usually 12% or, or one in eight parents will say, yes, my child has had one or more night terrors. So they're, they're very, very common in the toddler and preschool age group. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Seaton. He's a paediatric and adolescent sleep physician at the Woolcock Institute. And we're talking about night terrors. We have previously spoken about nightmares, which are very different. Um, Chris, one of the really interesting things that you said there was that... um, the one person who gets a good night's sleep when someone in the family is having night terrors <laughs> is the child. So effectively, they're actually sleeping through the experience. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, again, in sleep studies that we, uh, where we see kids have night terrors, the, the brain is essentially asleep. Um, so although it looks like uh, night terrors are very disturbing, they're, they're one of the few sleep disorders that don't make kids tired. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> um, again, yeah, it's crazy, and it's it is. It's uh, it's very paradoxical. Sometimes parents will say, "Well, you know, how do I know? You know, my child might might cry and they're awake, or they might cry and have a night terror. How do you how do you tell the difference in a crying child that is awake versus one that is asleep with a night terror? The best way is called visual tracking. So. If a child's having a night terror and you go into their bedroom and just, if there's enough light in the room, if you just move your face to the left and to the right, an awake child will track you with their eyes. They'll look at you and they will turn their head and their eyes as you move from left to right. But a child with a night terror will just look straight through you. They'll look like they're in a trance. And that's the best test to tell the difference between an asleep child with a night terror and an awake child. Also an awake child, as soon as you come in the room, they will sort of put their arms up and they will respond to you appropriately. So a child who's awake and distressed, when a mum or dad comes into the room, pretty much straight away the crying and distress will die down. And that's what we call an appropriate response. A child with a night terror, when a parent comes into the room, you know, very reasonable reassurance will not work. The the screaming and crying will continue. And again, that's difficult for parents to understand. Do we know how long night terrors can last for? Like, is there a, if we're going to sit <laughs> and wait it out, is there any way of knowing how long they'll go? Most kids, I mean, it does vary, but, but most kids, it's a couple of minutes at most. Oh, that's a, that's a relief. If it's <laughs> and then occasionally um, <laughs> We see kids who haven't read the medical textbooks and they have (laughs) 
they have long night terrors. And this is one of the problems, that occasionally a night terror might last 20 minutes. Wow. And so we say to parents, look, you can have a threshold which, which they can decide beyond which they will say, look, this is getting ridiculous. Uh, I want the night terror to stop. And so for a prolonged night terror, a parent can have a time threshold after which they say, look, if the night terror goes beyond eight minutes or 10 minutes or seven minutes, uh, I will wake my child up. I was told that you weren't meant to wake a child from a night terror. Yeah, you're not. So our advice is don't wake your child, stand back, don't touch, because touching will inflame it, and just let it ride its course. And most parents will say, yep, I can do that. But then the question remains, what about your question? What about for a prolonged night terror? So our general advice is not to wake a child um, who's having a night terror. There's a few reasons for it. First of all, you're then you're waking a child who is asleep, which is not a good thing in itself. The second thing is kids often then become confused because, again, like a sleepwalker, um, if you wake a sleepwalker or a child with a night terror, they're a little bit confused about why, why, why are they awake? Why is my mum or dad in the bedroom? When I wake up, that's not what usually happens. So confusion and wakefulness are not, are not great things. And that's why if you can, the first choice always is to not intervene and not touch and let, let the child's night terror ride it out, often for less than two minutes. Is there any way of actually stopping them? There's a couple of things. We know some of the things that, that ramp them up. So I've mentioned touching a child during a night terror is, is not good in the short and long term. The second thing is that uh, sleep deprivation or irregular sleep patterns really brings night terrors out. We notice a lot of kids have night terrors around Christmas and summer holidays when they're often when their sleep scheduling is a little bit lax because they're not at preschool, they're not at school. And so regulating sleep, having a regular bedtime and trying to avoid sort of late nights and sleep deprivation is really helpful in improving and minimising night terrors. The third thing is we know that fevers, temperatures in kids, tend to ramp up night terrors. So if a child has a fever or an infection, it's good to have a pretty low threshold for giving some you know, liquid Panadol or Nurofen to, to control the fever and also control the symptoms of the infection. And then in the longer term, kids often grow out of night terrors, most often by school starting age. So the the kids that we see mainly are in the toddler preschool age group. Very occasionally, we use a medicine, which is an electrical medicine, to control night terrors or sleepwalking in special, sort of special situations. We don't like to use the medicine because the night terrors, as we stress, are not medically harmful to the child. So our preferred approach is not to use medicine, and most parents are happy with that plan. But occasionally we need to use medicine, which is called clonazepam. And, for example, we saw a boy a couple of years ago who was going to boarding school. He was 12. The following year he was going to boarding school in Sydney. His parents lived way up in the bush and he would sleepwalk most nights and up in the bush on the farm. It didn't cause an issue. But the boarding school said, look, our boarding school is on a river and we would worry about a year seven boy sleepwalking at night 
and you need to seek medical help. So we used medicine to um, suppress uh, the electrical trigger for his sleepwalking and we demonstrated to the school that that medicine worked. Is that, is that a medicine that they consume? When you say electrical medicine, it's not shocks or anything, is it? Or? Oh, no, no, sorry, my mistake. So it's a medicine, it a, 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 can be liquid or, or a tablet, it's called clonazepam, um, and it suppresses the electrical trigger in the brain that triggers night terrors or sleepwalking or sleep-talking. Okay. So all these partial arousals are electrically triggered. They tend to run in families. So I've got a little bit of genetics about them. And the medicine you would just take, the child takes it each night at bedtime. You know, again, we don't want to use it in, we, we wouldn't. It would be unethical to use it in all children with night terrors because we'd be giving it to 10 or 12, 12% of the toddler preschool population. And these are... These are medically benign conditions. They, you know, unlike other sleep disorders, they don't disrupt sleep. They just disrupt the rest of the family. <laughs> yeah, so the rest of us. Yeah, they're a nuisance. But, and, and most parents with that sort of reasonable conversation will say, oh, you know, I'm reassured by this. It's good to know that these are okay. And a lot of kids with night terrors actually get mislabeled as other things. We see kids who have been diagnosed with colic or teething or tummy pain or um, even nightmares who have night terrors. So it's very important for, for us and for parents to um, understand what these are and what, what they are not. Chris, it's been such an interesting chat today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Siobhan. That's Dr. Chris Seaton. He's a paediatric and adolescent sleep physician at the Wilcock Institute. As I mentioned previously, we've also spoken with Chris about nightmares. So we'll make sure there's a link on the website to that previous interview. Just head to kindling.com.au. You've been listening to a Kindling Conversation podcast. We'd like to reach as many parents as possible, and you can help us by giving us a review wherever you downloaded this episode. It means that more people can find us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.